0: Good evening to you tonight. Glad you're here. Isaiah chapter 11 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. That way you can read the Word of God and then uh, hear it as well. And it has double, even more than double the impact Isaiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah and it was a time really he was ministering at a time where it was in many ways um, from after David's time the glory years of of the southern kingdom of Judah. He ministered during the reigns of some of the greatest and most godly kings that Israel ever knew or Judah ever knew. Uh, But Just because the leader was godly doesn't mean that it translated down into the everyday lives of the people. Everybody decides whether they're going to walk with God or not on their own. And so the nation as a whole, under a veneer, a very thin veneer of religiosity or religious kind of ritual, uh, they were very, very far from God. And so the book is made up uh, very much, the early part of it, of a series of prophecies and warnings to Judah. The children of Israel that they would turn from the path that they were on to avert the judgment that was coming. But he also broadens out in his uh, prophecies to speak more than just to the southern kingdom of Judah. He also addressed the same sins in the nations that surrounded Judah. The Bible says that uh, judgment begins in the house of God, but it never stops there. Um, I don't know if you've noticed as a Christian that God keeps you on a shorter leash. Uh, Now that you are a Christian and when before you were a Christian, so it seems like I can't get away with anything, and I feel that jerk, you know, and it's a wonderful thing, I'm not complaining at all, but just because uh, whether... Just because a person is not a Christian, has not chosen to follow the Lord and put their faith in Christ, doesn't mean that their sin is still okay. So God rebukes his own people because we sin against a greater light. We know better. But it doesn't mean that these sins are okay in the lives of non-Christians either. And every so often as Isaiah is ministering, he brings such uh, strong warnings. And he's just finished in uh, this previous chapter or two. To warning the southern kingdom of Judah against their sin, but then also warning the Assyrians against their sin as well. And every once in a while, he's got to let his head get above water and his attention turns to the Messiah who is going to come into the world and is really the answer to everything. And he does that now, at the beginning of chapter 11, one of the great prophecies in Isaiah concerning Jesus. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. So it's talking about David here. A branch shall grow out of his roots. You might remember, as we've studied earlier in the Bible, that God spoke to David and declared that the Messiah would come uh, out of his lineage, that uh, this uh, kind of uh, royal uh, uh, sequence of kings that would, over Judah and over Israel, that they would come from David's bloodline and that ultimately the Messiah would be born into the world as a king and out of David's bloodline. The problem is... Is that following the, final, the fall of the final king of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who ultimately conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, um, a king by the name of Zedekiah, that happened in 587 BC, the Davidic line of kings was broken at that moment. And it remained broken for 600 years. There was no king over Israel. And so to the children of Israel during that time, they would have looked at it and said, the promise that God made to David that the Messiah would come... As a king through the bloodline of David, it looked like that promise was over. It was as dead as any uh, dead tree that you would see out in the middle of a field somewhere that's being eaten up by the termites after uh, sitting dead for 600 years. And here Isaiah is saying, no, it will be broken. That line will appear to be broken. It will look like that promise that was made to David. Um, has been irreparably broken but out of this thing that looks dead this promise, this line of David a green shoot is one day going to come out of it and it's going to be fulfilled and of course it was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus into the world born into the world as a savior but also born into the world as a king in his first coming he came as the suffering savior to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins in his second coming, he comes as the conquering king, king of kings, lord of lords, revelation speaks. And so uh, born into the world, that promise is uh, full on. And so verse 1 uh, and 2 speaks of his first coming. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And here is a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit that was upon Jesus in his public ministry. You remember he began his public ministry with what? water baptism at the River Jordan at the hands of John the Baptist. He began his public ministry with the upon experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon him, the power for service. In the same way, we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in order to um, have the power to live the Christian life in this world, and then also to begin our life of uh, Christian service for the Lord. And so the Spirit came upon him. And here's this sevenfold description. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, none other than the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of wisdom. And that word wisdom, it speaks of the quality of being able to make good decisions. Did Jesus ever make a bad decision in his public ministry? Never once. Never a bad decision. I'll confess to you, I've never known him to make a bad decision in my life. I can't tell you what that means to me. Um, Because certain things happen in our lives and we go, Ouch, what's going on here? A little bit. And you realize, nah, he's taken bigger things than this and worked them together for good in my life. And so he is... uh, uh, he, 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 he never makes a bad decision in our life. The spirit of wisdom upon him, the spirit of understanding, uh, and this literally speaks of discernment. How many times the religious leaders came to Jesus during his ministry and they tried to trap him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar and all these uh, things that were going on to try and trap him and uh, divide his support of his followers. Jesus could discern immediately what was going on And then address it in a godly fashion. The spirit of counsel, the ability to give counsel... To people, to speak the truth to people, truth that will never disappoint. And his life and his teaching was full of that. The spirit of might, speaking of the power that was upon uh, his life. It's important to realize concerning the ministry of Jesus, as we read all of that, the red letters in the gospel and everything surrounding it, that everything he did in his ministry, he did in obedience to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and was responsible for his public ministry, the Bible says, is available to us in order to live the Christian life that uh, God has called us to live, the spirit of might upon him, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And so there was within Jesus, there was a part of that anointing of the Holy Spirit, this sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit was this fear of the Lord. You never read anything about Jesus. He hung out with people. He hung out with sinners. He was comfortable with people. He never compromised in in any environment that he was in. But people knew that he loved them and cared about them. And they knew that he was telling the truth. But he was never flippant about God or flippant about uh, the things of the Lord. He never told goofy jokes or... Um, you know, some kind of dumb thing comes out of his mouth. Well, he's in a category of one. The Bible says if anyone doesn't sin with his mouth, he's a perfect man, especially if you stand behind one of these boxes uh, long enough. But it is important to realize, and I think it's important to realize in the current kind of ministry um, environment that is here today, I wouldn't say that it is the majority uh, tone of things, but it is um, its it's, it's strong and it's growing, this kind of a flippant attitude toward God. And, and I get uneasy when I get a sense that the person that's ministering before me uh, does not have a deep, deep reverence and respect uh, for God. It harms our ministries if people don't uh, sense that. Uh, within us, and Jesus possessed it, and that 's important for us as well. So verses one and two describe the Messiah Jesus at his first coming, and then the, in beginning in verse three, there is the description of Jesus at his second coming when he comes to establish the millennial reign or what 's known as the kingdom age uh, of, of Christ, the thousand year uh, reign. Of Christ. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. So you go into a courtroom today, and a judge uh, sits before the courtroom, and he or she is forced to judge by virtue of uh, the senses of their eyes, what they're watching, what they're hearing in there. But you know, you can be fooled. Your eyes can be fooled. Your ears can be fooled. Um, justice isn 't always forthcoming from a court of of uh, man, but Jesus, in his millennial reign, no one will ever ever fool him, but he will, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. In other words, he'll wear it as a person wears clothes. So it'll be a mark of his life as well as faithfulness, the belt of his uh, waste And so imagine uh, walking into a courtroom, and this will be the case at his second coming, to walk into any courtroom that he, in, during that reign and that he is ruling over. And to know, as a righteous person, to walk into a courtroom and know that the righteous will always prevail in this courtroom. And the wicked and the unrighteous will always come up on the losing end. I'll tell you, you don't have that confidence in that. Sometimes we have a very elevated and we should have as impartial and as blind a judicial system as we can possibly have in the United States. But sometimes we can over-esteem the quality of of, uh, the decisions that are being made in our judicial system until you get introduced into it. And then you realize how much money, how much power, who can you hire? And uh, what kind of shenanigans can you do and all? And then you realize, wow, this is very far from what it's going to be like with Christ. But how wonderful in that age is a righteous person to know that anybody that goes into anything having to do with uh, judgment before the Lord, the righteous will always, always prevail. Whether rich or poor, it won't matter. That will always be the case. And to realize that in that courtroom... God's word will be the standard, Uh, always a standard. There won't be degrees of this and plea bargains and this and that and man's wisdom thrown into the mix and everything. God's word will be the thing that will be the standard uh, for that judgment. And if you've ever, again, if you've ever been involved in a, a a, a, a court dealing that didn't go well, you understand how uh, wonderful and what a blessing it's going to be so wrongdoing injustice uh, sin it's just simply not going to be tolerated at all it'd be fabulous and then in verse 6 talks about the animal kingdom in that kingdom age the wolf shall dwell with the lamb wow the leopard shall lie down with a young goat well, that happens today but only after the leopard has eaten the young goat that's the old joke the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and then the little child shall lead them around the cow and the bear shall graze so there's going to be this moving from these animals that are carnivorous in the kingdom age they're going to go to becoming vegetarian or whatever the proper word is that for animals and their young ones will lie down together. The lion, here it is again, shall eat straw just like the ox. The nursing child, little baby, is going to be playing by the cobra's hole. Nobody will be having an attack about that. The wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den, and they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the Lord shall be, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea and so uh, he's going to bring this reign of peace and it will be a thousand year reign of peace it's even going to trickle down in and impact the animal kingdom so not only will men be living at peace with one another and but the animal kingdom will be at peace with one another and also with uh, with man there'll be this beautiful harmony uh, between man and and the animal kingdom. So the animals that we know as wild animals, they're a danger to domesticated animals, they're a danger to us as human beings, Uh, they're going to become tame and they're going to be harmless uh, to uh, everyone. Imagine uh, being a young child and having a lion or a cobra as a pet. It's coming. It's coming. Wouldn't it be great to have a lion as a pet? I mean, in the kingdom age, not right now. You get up out of bed, you know, and you come out of the bedroom, and there he is, this lion, gets up to greet you. And you go into the kitchen to start your coffee, and it's purring and rubbing up against your leg. And, I mean, it's going to be great. I wouldn't mind having one of those right now, but they don't exist right now. And uh, otherwise, you get one sip of coffee, and then they have breakfast, and that would be all of that, so everything 's going to change, I and mean, everything 's going to be peaceful everywhere on things and so um, there all these animal shows, these predator shows that are on tv they 'll all be gone, and everything it 'll be like here 's Susie petting the lion here 's Susie playing with the asp and the cobra. It might be a little more boring, but um, it'll be a lot better. And then it speaks about the Gentiles during the kingdom age. In that day, there uh, shall be a root of Jesse. Again, Jesus coming through the bloodline of David, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this kingdom age is not only going to be a wonderful time for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. There's not going to be any more anti-Semitism. There's not going to be any more uh, anti-Semitism of Islam or anything. There's not going to be any uh, hostility in that way uh, toward the Jews, no kind of prejudice at all between any groups of people. Everyone will be so completely united together in, in the... worship of the Lord himself, obedience to the Lord, that it will, as a result, unite us as people. The human condition is very, very diverse. I mean, you look at how different we are even within this room. If we were to know personalities even beyond uh, race or background or income levels or these kind of things, but think about the diversity of the body of Christ all around the world. It's just amazing, the diversity. And yet, when you run into a Christian on a plane or on the other side of the world or wherever it might be, and you say, hey, has God been good to you? Because somehow there's been some tip, you know, say something like, boy, you know, I feel really blessed. Okay, you immediately go, okay, Christian, nobody's using the word blessed. Around you know, say, are you a Christian? Has God been good to you, know? And then pretty soon you're off and running, no matter and you think about how diverse the body of Christ is. And yet we're all held together. Why? Because the one who holds us together is greater than all the greatness of our diversity. And that's what will be the case during the kingdom age. So instead of it just being Represented and occurring within the body of Christ, what we experience, we experience a little bit of the millennium right now, but that will characterize the entire world the it doesn 't mean that we shouldn 't fight. Uh, prejudice and these kind of things, and the age in which we live, we should. And no Christian should be uh, prejudiced on, on, as, you know, as we see defined in the world around us. But there is that knowledge that as much as we fight against it, that it will exist. Uh, until the reign of Christ, and then one day it will all be gone. We will all recognize, wow, you're here, I'm here, none of us deserves to be here, God is great, and all, everything else, all of the differences will pale in comparison. It really, really will be a good day in human history when both Jew and Gentile and all of our goofiness will be united together in uh, that uh, blessed Way. And then it speaks about, as we begin in verse 11, talks about a remnant uh, that, of, that is going to be gathered back by the, of Israel from all over the world back into the land of Israel at that time. Now remember, before, immediately before the kingdom age, Jesus' second coming, then he sets up the thousand-year reign of Christ. Immediately before his second coming is a seven-year period of tribulation. And the Antichrist will go on a rampage against anyone who does not take the mark of the beast. And so uh, that will include Jews and Gentiles. But his principal target will be against the Jews, his hatred of Jesus. They are the race of people that brought the Messiah into the world. They will... Uh, Foolishly believe for a period of time that the Antichrist is the promised Messiah at the halfway point of the Great Tribulation period uh, the Antichrist will go into the Holy of Holies of the temple that he allows the Jews to rebuild he will then set himself up in the temple declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped as God the Jews will then realize we've been duped and we've been fooled And as Jesus instructed uh, in the uh, Olivet Discourse, any Jews that are in the world at that time, that they should run for their lives because the Antichrist will mete out a terrible, terrible persecution against them. So the Jews will scatter throughout the whole world for their own survival during the Great Tribulation. But when Jesus comes back at his second coming and establishes his reign, they will then begin to flood back into the land. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. The first time uh, that he brought his uh, uh, children into the promised land from out of the world was when he redeemed them out of the first Exodus, out of Egypt, bringing them into the Promised Land. This will be the same thing. A second Exodus, Isaiah is talking about, bringing them from all over the world back into the Promised Land, back into Israel. To recover the remnant of his people who were left, they will come from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the uh, islands of the seas. He will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And as the Jews come together, uh, he tells us further that the envy of Ephraim shall depart. Ephraim was the largest of the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, remember when uh, Israel split following the, during the, following the reign of Solomon, during the reign of Rehoboam, and ten tribes made up the northern kingdom of Israel, two tribes the southern kingdom of Judah. Ephraim was the, the largest of the tribes, and so very often the northern kingdom is spoken of as Ephraim. The envy of Ephraim, Israel shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. And so Isaiah says that when they come back into the land during this kingdom age, there will no longer be a division among the Jews. They won't be fighting one another as they were at the time uh, of Isaiah. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west, Together they will plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. And so they'll come back into the land, uh, defeat their enemies uh, as they do so. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, talking about the Gulf of Suez. So they're going to come from all over the world back into Israel, great numbers of them. And God will step in and supernaturally, He will touch certain characteristics of the world that will make it easier for them. And uh, so He will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of uh, Egypt. He will turn somehow that Gulf of Suez I- into a, uh, a passable way through the waters for people to return. He will, uh, with his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river. This refers to the river Euphrates. He will strike it into seven streams. And so instead of being this great river, it'll just be seven streams, easy to cross and allow uh, people to cross over dry shod to the land. He'll, he's going to Supernaturally, even on a physical level, touch the world to allow his people to come back into the land and to uh, worship Jesus there. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came from the land of Egypt. And so there will be a highway that will be in place and established between Assyria and also in between Israel that will allow the Jews then accommodating their return back uh, into the land in verse 12, there's the continuation of this or chapter 12, a continuation of this kingdom age. And in that day, you speaking to the Jews will say, "O oh Lord, I will praise you, though you are angry with me. Your anger is turned away. And you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And so when they come back into the land, there will be this recognition. And there's a a partial fulfillment of this when they return to the land. Uh, Following uh, the Babylonian captivity but it has its fullest fulfillment greatest fulfillment during the kingdom age when they come into the land of Israel and into Jerusalem and who's going to be reigning there as Lord of Lord and King of Kings it's going to be Jesus and they're going to realize during the great tribulation the Jewish people that we so didn't want to believe in Jesus as the Messiah that it set us up to believe in the Antichrist as the coming Messiah, now we realize that it was Jesus. They will begin to praise him for his grace and not casting them off um, as, as God's people, so to speak, and that there was still room for them for forgiveness. There was a future and a hope. Uh, for them. And and the song is a beautiful one. Uh, There's two songs that are going to be sung during that thousand-year reign by the Jewish people, as it's described in chapter 12. One of them is a song where the Jews are singing to God. They're so overwhelmed by his grace toward them through history. And then when they come into the kingdom age... Those that survived the great tribulation, they'll be in awe of the fact that, wow, this is my portion, you didn't give up on us. And it's a wonderful passage to speak speak about, just um, that the boldness that we can have in a relationship with God. Um, No matter how great our backsliding, I'm not not advocating it. The best way is to never backslide or turn from the Lord or go through his chastening. But when it happens and there's true repentance, to be able to then turn to the Lord and be uh, more in awe of him than ever uh, because of his goodness and his grace and to have that translate into worship toward him and uh, and to result in an even greater love for him. And we'll see that uh, uh, in in them during that, that kingdom age. I love this thing where he says in uh, verse 2, For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. And I think I love that fact that God is our song. Now, I love music. Um, I mean, as a kid, when I had that little transistor radio um, up against my ear, And listening to any music I could pull in on the, well, not any music, the music I wanted to hear. But put it there. I mean, I wouldn't leave music for a movie or TV or anything. I love music and the power of music. And then you become a Christian and you realize, wow, this is something that's God-given. And this is something that I can express in terms of worship to the Lord. You think about, so for me, I understand what what Isaiah is saying here. A song is a blessing in life. What if there was no song in life? What if there were no songs? there's nothing to listen to, no songs to listen to, nothing to hum along to, nothing that somebody sang with such beauty and it touched the inward part of your life and you fell in love with that song because somebody said what's in your heart in a way that you couldn't say it but it resonated with you. Life would be so much less. And so Christ coming into our life, He's brought a song and a beauty and a joy and a hope that we wouldn't uh, otherwise uh, know. Then in uh, verse 4, they also lead in another song. And in this, because God has been so gracious to them, they now call on all of the nations, the Gentiles now, to come and worship the Lord. There's nothing like a forgiven sinner to then go to those who are in the world and call them now. You come and know this God who has been so good and so gracious to me, and that's what they'll do. Listen, you're not going to like the millennium if you don't like worship. If you, if, for instance, if the worship team was leading us in worship here and you read the bulletin all the way through, well, you're going to have a new body as a Christian before all of that happens, so that can change. But that millennial reign is going to be all about worship. And in that day, you will say, Praise the Lord calling out on the nations to do that. Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And so just the joy and the music and worship that's going to characterize uh, that age. When we come to chapter 13 all the way through chapter 23, 11 chapters, we come into a major new break in the book of Isaiah. And these are prophecies concerning Uh, 10 Gentile nations that were in the region uh, of the world surrounding Israel. And for the most part, these are prophecies of judgment against those particular nations. As I mentioned when we began, uh, the fact that God judges us as his people when we sin, but it doesn't mean that those that don't know the Lord or they reject the Lord or they disobey the Lord, that God is just okay with that. He's only, you know, going to discipline uh, his people. Here the judgment moves from Israel, and now it moves to uh, the world around them because they had every opportunity to put their faith in in. Uh, in following the God of the Bible as much as any Jew did in, in, in those days. And so he begins with a prophecy uh, for uh, Babylon. As he goes through the different nations that he's going to pronounce his judgment upon, it kind of moves westward from Babylon uh, all the way to Tyre. And it, the, past, the, the whole section really speaks strongly of the sovereignty of God. Uh, that God is in control, not just of his people, but of the pagan countries in this world. You need to know that. God is in control of Iran or whoever we think our enemy is. I don't want him to have nuclear weapons either. Not with that religious ideology there. But there's a lot of instability in the world. And God doesn't just have control of the kingdom of God in the world. He has control over everything. And when he says jump, They jump. They may not know who they're jumping for, but they will jump. God is sovereign. He is almighty in human history. And again, He rules over all and He overrules all for His purposes. History is headed toward God's appointed end. And it's important for us to realize that and to take comfort in that in a world that continually appears to us to be out of control. But it isn't anything uh, of the sort. And so he's got the whole world in his hand. Everybody now. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hand. Okay. All right. That's enough of that. Remembering the fear of the Lord, right? But that was in the fear of the Lord too. Who was that? Was that Louis Armstrong that sang that way back when? I told you I had the radio, you know. I don't know. On things, but but he does well. Let's uh, let's get into this. The burden against Babylon. So the prophecy is described as a burden, and it will continually be through the section. So um, Isaiah, when God gave Isaiah a prophecy, it was like a burden in his heart, and and that the only way that that burden could be lifted was to either speak or to write. Uh, the prophecy. And those of you who have a gift of prophecy where God has uh, used you that way, you know God puts a, a message, a prophecy from the Lord to speak to someone or into a situation, and you realize what that burden is. You are not released from that burden until you're faithful to declare it. Well, Isaiah felt very much the same thing. Probably on a little grander scale uh, than we experience it, but we understand. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on a high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. And so God begins to describe an a army that he is putting together that is going to one day invade Babylon and uh, defeat her. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice at my exaltation. We find out a little bit later in verse 17 in the chapter that the army that God is raising up to fight against uh, uh, Babylon and ultimately defeat her is, uh, is made up of the Medes and we know historically that there was, there was the Medo-Persian Empire, sometimes known as the Empire of the Medes, but it's called the Medo-Persian Empire because it was made up of both peoples and the Medes were the greater of the two, but it was a confederation and so God says he calls his army here to rise up to defeat the Babylonians. Both of them are pagan nations. They are not godly nations. Again, God can call an army out of anywhere. Everything is at his service uh, and, and for, uh, for his uh, use. Again, speaking of his sovereignty, so he calls for this nation to rise up and, uh, and he calls them his sanctified ones in verse 13 because this army was set aside for his use. His use was the judgment Of Babylon. The noise of the mountains, uh, or the noise of the multitude in the mountains, like that of many people. Uh, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, uh, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. And so the invasion of Babylon is described here in these verses. You notice down in verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes uh, against them. And so uh, that is... He ultimately gets there to describe what army he's raising up. Well, let's return back to verse 5 and talking about God's judgment upon this world-ruling empire known as the Babylonian Empire. One of the things that makes this prophecy very, very fascinating is that at the time in which Isaiah gave the prophecy, Assyria was the world-ruling empire, not Babylon. Babylon was a nation... And it was a fairly significant nation at the time. But it very much played second fiddle to uh, Assyria. And so... It would be decades and decades and decades after this prophecy given by Isaiah before Babylon would rise to the kind of place of power and they would then be able to overthrow the Assyrian Empire and then become, as a result, the dominant power in the region. And yet, in this prophecy, God not only indicates that Babylon will ultimately supplant Assyria as the world-ruling empire, but he looks all the way down through history to when he would judge her for her pride and the excesses of her reign. And it's really amazing because he then names in verse 17 the nation that he will use to overthrow them. And at the time that this prophecy is given and he mentions the Medes, the Medes are just a tribe out in the desert. They're, they're nobody, nobody even dreamed that the Medes are going to become a world ruling empire, much less that they're going to overthrow the Babylonian empire. And so God looks and he prophesies way ahead of, of the events before they uh, occur because he lives outside of time. He sees everything as, as if a, a, a tale that's already been told, as it says concerning our own uh, lives. So an amazing Amazing prophecies in the Word of God. This is why, when you really get into the, if you really get into the Book of Isaiah, where you say, "Okay, I'm going to get into the Book of Isaiah," and now you're talking about as an individual study, you're talking about a couple of years to make heads or tails out of all of this. It's a, it's an, it's a fascinating book. There's a lot to it, and um, w- one of the things that you'll immediately come into contact with is that those who have set up. Uh, the two Isaiah, a theory related to the book of Isaiah, that there was uh, a portion of the book of Isaiah was written at one particular point in time, and another part of the book of Isaiah was written much later by someone other than Isaiah. The reason that that theory has been, uh, people came up with it, is because of prophecies like this that were so God prophesying so, such a long period before the coming of Messiah before, uh, concerning the overthrow of empires that because they didn't believe in the supernatural or they didn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, what are they going to do with that? You're either going to accept that and believe God as being divinely inspiring the Scriptures or you've got to come up with uh, some other explanation. And they don't want to believe in God. They don't want to believe in the, the supernatural. Of God, and so they said, No, there was an Isaiah, he wrote part of this, but these other things were written by someone else who claimed to be Isaiah further down the line. You say, Well, what's the answer to that? I'll tell you what my answer is. My answer is in the New Testament, when Jesus quoted from both portions of the book of Isaiah, the portion that they say the real Isaiah wrote, and the portion that they say, some later false isaiah wrote jesus quotes from both sections and ascribes it to isaiah so jesus knows what he's talking about here and if you don't mind i'll hitch my wagon to him and not to some egghead uh, somewhere who can't accept that a god that is big enough to understand is it big enough uh, to worship, and so a fascinating prophecy. He goes on in this prophecy with uh, the uh, concerning the judgment to come upon Babylon, speaking about the whores that are uh, of the coming judgment. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand; it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. And every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. And Babylon is, is their falling. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They shall be amazed at one another. Their faces shall be like flame. And so people will be paralyzed uh, by fear uh, during this invasion. We know that when Babylon ultimately fell, city of Babylon Um, at the hands of of the Medes and the Persians that Belteshazzar, the grandson of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was reigning. Remember in Daniel chapter 5, he's the guy that ordered all of the cups and all of the vessels that had been taken from the temple, holy vessels, and they were being used in this a party and debauchery and drunkenness of some party he was in the middle of. And remember, God uh, wrote upon the wall, "Meanie, meanie, tekel you, farsin. you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Daniel interpreted that for him and said, Tonight, you're going to be judged. And the Medes and the Persians, they diverted the Euphrates River just enough because the city was set upon a river, and uh, that ran through it. They diverted the river just enough for the river to go down below... Uh, A few feet from where the gates were. And it was enough for people to come up under that. The army to come up under that. And then all of a sudden they're in the city and they begin to overthrow. And this was the panic of the people. They thought there's no way anyone could ever take Babylon. And yet they did. Just as God said would take place. Behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. Now, um, When we get into this section here, as we look down in verse 11, God says through Isaiah, I will punish the world for for, um, its evil. Now we have a picture here where Isaiah moves from speaking exclusively of, of Babylon. All that he's talking about here will be fulfilled in a near fulfillment with the overthrow of Babylon. But now it's speaking also of a judgment, a worldwide judgment that is going to uh, occur and basically what's happening here is all of the doom and all the judgment that fell on ancient Babylon all of it's just a shadow of the doom and the judgment that's one day going to fall on the entire world again during the seven-year tribulation period which is an expression of God's wrath and of his judgment do any of you look at the world today and have a sense that God's getting a little upset maybe over what he's saying I mean when you when you read about um, what is it? Thailand here, where you people are going from all over the world, and they're buying little boys and girls for sex for like a quarter, and the, the stuff that he sees every day behind every wall and every door and every conversation, and and as the world is collectively, there's a great, there's a great. Um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit all over the world. So many people are becoming Christians all around the world. It's fabulous. But at the same time that's happening, there's this systematic move against Christianity and the things that we stand for. And so the brutalizing of Christians around the world. What's happening in China is just crazy how many people are becoming Christians in there. I mean, it really threatens to destabilize. That government is as strong-armed as they are, but it's not just China, but, you, but with this moving away from God, what God sees on a daily basis, and his, then his wrath and his righteous anger and judgment is, is, is welling up within him. It's interesting when you turn to the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter uh, 6 through 19 is a very specific description of the period of the great tribulation as those seals are broken. In chapter 6, to begin the great tribulation period, the judgment of the second, uh, most specifically for the second half of three and a half years of the tribulation period, um, that uh, at the end of the breaking of those seals, people are hiding in caves. They're they're still not willing to repent and turn to God. They love their sins so much. But they're hiding in caves and they're crying out, who will save us from the wrath of the lamb? Speaking of, they realize this is judgment that's coming from the lamb. The lamb is none other than Jesus. What do you got to do to a lamb to make a lamb angry and filled with wrath? And the world is doing it to God. God and that judgment will be poured out. And so here is this picture. You, Because of the language, we know that the, what, it, what it is speaking about is something broader than uh, just the narrow application to Babylon. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both anger and fierce anger. That is of God. I'm, I'm glad that Tribulation period is described as a time of of God's wrath being poured out upon a world that's rejected his son. I'm glad that we will not know that wrath or that anger because of our faith in Christ. That's the only protection. And this, it comes to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in it's going forth. The moon will not uh, cause its light to shine again. Some of us recognize this language from the New Testament. Jesus speaking about the great tribulation period in the Olivet discourse. He quotes this language, uh, and, and Uh, concerning the uh, coming tribulation period so it makes it obvious to us it has a broader application than to ancient Babylon and then the language of verse 11 I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity I will halt the arrogance of the proud will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold and a man more than the gold Uh, The Golden Wedge of Ophir Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. It shall be as a hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people. Everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone will be found, who is found will be thrust through and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes the children will bear the consequences of the sins of their fathers their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished again very much a local application to Babylon all of that occurred but all of this horror yet awaits during the tribulation period and if you want an in-depth look at what's being uh, spoken of here again Revelation chapter 6 through 19 and then God here begins to speak of the army that he will raise up to overthrow uh, the Babylonians. Again, as I said, an astonishing prophecy given the fact that when this was made, they're just a tribe out in the middle of nowhere. No one could believe that they would be a world-ruling empire uh, after Assyria and after Babylon. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. In other words, there's nothing that Babylon in terms of wealth could offer them to buy them off. The reason is they were raised up by God to overthrow Babylon in judgment. Also, their bows will dash the young men to pieces. They will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children in Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but the wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels. Uh, they built all these things not knowing they built it for hyenas to come in one day and live on their tile floors and beautifully um, you know, plastered walls. The jackals will uh, make their home in the pleasant palaces. Her time is, come, uh, is near to come and her days will not be Prolonged. Then we would get into chapter 14. It continues this prophecy against Babylon, the judgment. Uh, upon Babylon will allow uh, the return of the Jews who were exiled from the land uh, by Babylon. They will be able to return. You remember when uh, Judah was overtaken and conquered by the Babylonians, the Babylonians took the overwhelming majority of the population of the Jews. This was their custom when they conquered countries and they took them captive uh, to Babylon. They would displace populations in order to maintain control. And so the Jews were largely removed from the land, taken to Babylon. This prophecy speaks of the fact that they would be able to return. Again, God is speaking this long before uh, the southern kingdom of Judah ever fell to Babylon. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will choose Israel. That's a wonderful thing to underline. Will choose, will still choose Israel after all their goofiness and their rebellion and their nuttiness and their sin and all that stuff. God never gave up on them. He never gives up on us either. He'll send us to Babylon. We want idolatry. That's what he did with the Jews. He said, you like idolatry? I'll give you idolatry. I'll send you to the land of idolatry, which was Babylon. And you can worship idols so they come out of your nose And it was a cure for them for idolatry. They longed for the day that I could worship once again the true and the living God in the temple in Jerusalem. And God knows how to get our attention too when we think something is more important to him. He says, all right, you want this? I'll give you that till it comes out of your nose. And I know you'll want to come back to me because I know you've been born again. And then when we turn back to him, then he still chooses us and there's still a future and a hope for us. But I will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. And then people will take them and bring them to their place. The house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord, and they will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their Oppressors, And it shall come to pass in that day, uh, the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and hard bondage in which you serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And so, God, uh, here are the Jews long before they've been taken captive by Babylon and and then and taken to Babylon. God speaks of the fact that that will occur, that they will be allowed to return to the land. And he says, let me give you a proverb. Let me give you a song to sing while you're in the Babylonian captivity about Babylon's future so you can maintain uh, a hope of returning to the land. They, because when the Jews were uh, in the Babylonian Empire, it looked like the Babylonian Empire was going to go on for hundreds of years. And if you were a Jew hoping to return back to the land of Israel, it was like, there is no hope. There's no hope for my children, no hope for my grandchildren, no hope for my great-grandchildren. That's all you care about. Uh, Once you got your head screwed on straight in a relationship with God, and yet God says, no, you're going to. And one day Babylon's going to fall, and here's a little song. You can sing concerning the future judgment that's going to come upon the king of Babylon. And again, it fell upon Belteshazzar. Again, uh, all of that is recorded in Daniel chapter 5. Here's the song. How the oppressor has ceased. The golden city has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke who ruled the nations in anger and is persecuted and no one hinders. And so the the cruelty, the brutality in the end of of the Babylonian empire uh, under Belteshazzar described here and then as a result of Babylon's uh, destruction and judgment here, here's the effect upon the whole earth. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you. And the cedars of Lebanon uh, saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. And so the wonderful peace that everyone experiences. I'm reading a book right now. I read uh, four spiritual ones. And so this allows me uh, to read a non-spiritual one, another one about World War II. But anyway... um, Called the liberators, uh, liberators, yeah, and uh, but it just talks about the the um, a, a particular a company in the United States military that fought uh, for 500 straight days. It doesn't mean they weren't taken off the front line occasionally, but 500 straight days uh, as a part of the defeat of uh, the Nazis in in Germany. And then you know you think about the peace. Uh, that Europe felt, the world felt, once once that monster and that monstrous kingdom was uh, brought to an end. Well, the same thing is that's happened throughout history and, and happened when Babylon was overthrown. And here is the king. In verse nine, Isaiah reveals the reception that King Belteshazzar was received in heaven, following and in hell rather, Sheol, not in heaven, following his death. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth it has raised up from their thrones. All the kings of the nations, and so when Belteshazzar died, he went into Sheol, Abraham's bosom, went down into the hot side of things. And all of the people, uh, there was the idea of this, hey, we've heard a little bit about this great king, Babylon, all of that. Wow, we got a celebrity coming our way. And so he gets to be a celebrity in hell for about five minutes. And then after that, it's a a mere participant uh, forever and ever and ever. So there's a little bit of fanfare. Everybody's excited about him uh, coming in and they say to him, have you become as weak as you are, as we are? Um, Have have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you, and the worms cover you. So his body went into the ground, and when you go into the ground, uh, what kind of a blanket and sheet do you have? Well, you have maggots and you have worms, and they eat the body. But his spirit goes down into Sheol there. And he gets this uh, great greeting and uh, and they think, "Wow, what a, tell us the stories about Babylon, all the things you did, but he ends up in hell and he 's a classic example of a man who uh, did everything you could experience in life, did everything except to prepare for the most important thing in life, and that was the prop Where are you going to spend eternity on the proper side of it? Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Belteshazzar had the whole world, so to speak. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? And and this is a pic this is the picture of the guy. He had power, wealth, any, anything he wanted, as much of it as he wanted. But what good is it if you live seventy years, eighty years, ninety years, having all of that, and you end up in hell? And 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 uh, and, and that's the price that you pay. And there's no preparation for for eternity. And Jesus is the only preparation for eternity. And so Jesus had it right. Do you realize when Jesus talks about that? Uh, speaking of, of the fact that what shall it profit a profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Jesus is saying that your soul, you just be a little old person in some anonymous neighborhood in, in some anonymous apartment complex in Modesto, nobody but three other people in the whole world know that you exist and God says of your soul that it is more valuable then the whole world and every experience in the world put together. And if a person makes that exchange and says, I will exchange my soul to be able to have all of the glory and all of the power and all of the experiences of life and yet loses their soul as a result, he says, that person's made a disastrous decision. Because the soul of every single person Every individual person in this world is more valuable than all of the world put together. That's how valuable our soul is. What will a person do with their soul when they recognize that to be the truth? They will put their faith in Christ. They will put their faith in Christ and secure a place in eternity. We are rich beyond description and imagination because of the decision that we have made as Christians to put our faith in the Lord. And if you haven't done that tonight, you need to do that uh, tonight. Then in verse 12, he begins to describe uh, the fall of Lucifer. And we looked at this this morning. He segues out of talking about the king of Babylon. It seems abrupt to then start to talk about the devil, but it's not as abrupt as we think because he merely pronounces judgment upon the power, the force, the patron, the king that was behind all of the actions of the king of Babylon. And that particular patron was none other than the devil how you were fallen from heaven O Lucifer son of the morning how you are cut down to the ground you who weakened the nations and so a description of his fall the reason and cause for his fall given in verse 13 for you have said in your heart I will ascend into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars of God I will also sit in the mount of the congregation and the further sides of the north I will Ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High God. And his Satan's five great I will statements. And for him, in his position, all of those I will statements he made were done in defiance of God's word and God's plan for his life. So he describes what that defiance is related to his call and God's purposes for his life. That happens different as it relates to our lives because God has a different call and purpose on our life. But all sin is the exaltation of my will against the will of God, and it uh, and it is a disastrous. Uh, decision to make and it never leads to a higher life here he wants to be something greater than he is he's not satisfied with merely being an angel he wants to be like god himself and so he rebels against the wisdom uh, of god and the love of god that's found in his wisdom and the result is not an exaltation But God says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And those who see you in hell when Satan is ultimately cast into hell uh, and Consider you, here's what they'll say, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of its prisoners? They're going to look at, as we looked at this morning, Ezekiel chapter 28, the indescribable outward beauty of Lucifer in his original creation before he fell. And then to look at that outward beauty and to realize such evil and such wickedness was found inside of him, uh, they'll be astonished at kind of the contradiction uh, of the two. And then in verse 18, he returns to speaking about the king of Babylon, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory. Everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones uh, of the pit, like a corpse uh, trodden underfoot. And so he says basically concerning... Uh, Belteshazzar, concerning the king of Babylon that he will uh, not uh, be, enjoy a decent burial at the time uh, that he dies because you have destroyed your land and slain your people the brood of evildoers shall never be named prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the earth uh, with cities and so Uh, His royal line, his children would be cut off, very common in ancient warfare. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and the remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. And make it a possession for the porcupine, the marshes of muddy water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. And so the Lord says, by the time I get done judging Babylon, uh, I'm going to sweep it clean of people. I'm going to depopulate it. Then in verse 24, uh, God swears to uh, break the Assyrians uh, in uh, in. Here. And he says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely I have fought, so it shall come to pass, as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountain tread him. Underfoot, when his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations for the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who shall annul it? His hand is stretched out and who shall turn it back? And so God is talking about the fact that... Uh, Again, as we've seen before, concerning the Assyrian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah, they would be successful in conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. But when they came into Judah, they would conquer all of Judah, but not Jerusalem. Again, they came up to the very gates of the city to destroy the city. And again, as we'll see a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 37, God supernaturally delivered the city with a single angel, just angel Bob goes out. Angel Alex uh, goes out and wipes out 185,000 supernaturally, a miracle of God, of, of the front line Assyrian troops. And then the king and all of them retreated back into the land and were never quite the same as a result. So God pronounces that judgment on Assyria. And then he closes up the chapter by... Uh, moving into his judgment upon Philistia. This is the burden which came to uh, in the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent, the firstborn of the poor. Uh, will feed and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine and I will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate, cry, O city. All you of Philistia are dissolved for smoke will come from the north and no one will be alone in his appointed times. And so Philistia is what we know as, it was the land of the Philistines. So it would be more towards like what we know as the Gaza Strip. Uh, Today, But it was the home of the Philistines. They were perennial enemies uh, of Judah and of the Jewish people. And when Ahaz, as he's referenced here in verse 28, when he died, uh, before he died, he had had considerable success in defeating and conquering the Philistines. Again, as, as an enemy of the Jewish people who were always trying to destroy the Jews, nothing new under the sun. And, uh, and so when Ahaz died, the Philistines were all excited about it, life's going to get better for us, hip hip hooray, and uh, they handed out candy and all the things that happened today. And over the death of this king and, and what happened to Israel, and so Uh, But God warns them that, yes, Ahaz was a a difficult king for you. Uh, He brought you into subjection. He defeated you in your attempts to destroy the Jews. But out of his bloodline are going to come other kings who are going to be uh, just as much trouble and even more trouble for you. And we know uh, historically the king Hezekiah, king Josiah, even king Manasseh, who was a terrible, terrible, ungodly king, the worst king ever of the southern kingdom of Judah. But he repented at the very end of his life and spent his remaining years living for God. And God allowed him to defeat the Philistines, put them in place. And so God says, don't get so excited about the death of King Ahaz. Uh, There will be others that will come from his bloodline who will bring similar defeats uh, to your attempts to invade and to conquer the Jews. Well, we will stop there tonight, and uh, of course... And no, no, we've got one more verse. Oh, don't get me stopping early now. Verse 32. What would, listen, if I had missed that, I'd be up all night. Uh, what will they answer, the messengers of the nation, that the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it? And so God's pr- promised to protect Jerusalem, from, uh, and, and so he did, and so he has done. Let's stand together and we'll pray. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, it's like, what are you doing? Here you are in church. The reason that you're in church is you're on a search. You haven't found it yet. And you're never going to find the meaning and the purpose of life until you're engaged in what you've been created for. And what you've been created for is a relationship with God. And the only way that you can enter into that relationship is to have your sin addressed and be forgiven. And that is only found by putting your trust in Jesus. And there are going to be pastors and there are going to be other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And if you've never done that, they would love to answer your questions related to that and pray with you tonight. And a miracle will occur. The greatest miracle that can occur in life will occur in your life tonight. God Almighty and the purpose of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again. And heaven will be your home. You'll be prepared for eternity. And you'll get to grow in your knowledge and relationship with God this side of heaven it is wonderful don't leave tonight unsaved if you have any needs in your life for uh, that need prayer tonight they'd love to pray with you and pray for you as well I'm going to close our service in prayer we've got some refreshments out in the fellowship uh, uh, hall uh, cookies and maybe some other things for those of you who are um, into other things Uh, maybe maybe it'll all be cookies I don't know and uh, so maybe I'll pray related to that. Can you pray for cookies and ask God's blessing? We'll pray for the milk. And uh, we know that's, that's safe and that's good. But that's all open to you. And again, just to spend some time fellowshipping together, enjoying one another's company. Go get the kids and bring them over out of their classrooms and let them stuff their faces and uh, whatever you allow them to do. Lord, thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you for just... Chapter after chapter after chapter of you speaking about history in advance and all of it coming to pass. And we just praise you for your faithfulness to every personal promise and the surety of it that's in your word to each and every one of us individually. We thank you for all of the promises that you've given, the signs of the last days and the return of Jesus for the rapture of the church and how we see it all just right before our eyes and to know that as sure as the Assyrians fell to the Babylonians and the Babylonians fell to the Medo-Persians that you are coming back for us and you're going to take us into heaven and Jesus we're coming back with you at your second coming and we're going to rule and reign with you during that thousand year reign and that heaven is our portion forever and ever and ever and we thank you for that tonight we are so grateful and we give you praise and we give you our thanks tonight in jesus name as we thank you lord for the refreshment that we're going to enjoy and the fellowship with one another at the same time listen to our conversations be blessed by them lord as we speak of you And again, we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.